The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that these Galileans suffered in this way because they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those eighteen who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I found none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here as we gather around our computers, as we are a few of us here in this Russian center, wherever we may be, physically, emotionally, spiritually, help us to know that you welcome us. Help us to know that you have seen to it that this moment even exists and that you have something you want us to hear something to trust, something to give our lives to. And so we ask that you would help us to have open hearts, open minds, receptivity to whatever it is you have for us today. Give us grace and help us to believe that all this while you see us and know us in all of our complexity and your response is always to love, heal, and restore. And so whatever needs loved, healed, and restored today, we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a reading from Scripture, huh? Kick off a new series on parables. Fred, what were you thinking picking out this text? I mean, you've had a pretty good run here at City Church, but uh, I don't think you've got much to say today. <laughs> so we're starting this new series called Tell It Slant. It comes from an Emily Dickinson poem where she says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus tends to tell it slant with these parables. And it is one of his favorite forms of communication. These are the subversive stories that Jesus told. Casual stories about soil and seeds and bandits and victims and farmers and merchants. They actually rarely mention God. So most people didn't think there was a cause for alarm. Nothing threatening to the status quo and they would relax their defenses. They would walk away perplexed, or they would walk away bored, or they would just whatever. But the stories 
lodged in their imagination. And like a time bomb, they would explode in their unprotected hearts. He was talking about God, and we didn't even know it. We've been invaded because Jesus, the subversive, has struck, stru strikes again. So Jesus, I want to tell you something. As we look at these parables, Jesus doesn't play in these parables. I, I would never say don't to build your theology based on the parables, but you're going to need more because Jesus is just leaving so much out open-ended in these stories, making direct parallels to God and what God is up to um, through Jesus is possible in these parables, in some parables. It may not even be possible in others, and sometimes it's just literally anybody's guess, which makes me think Jesus wants us to allow these parables to be alive, to get under our skin, and to ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in this story, in this parable? According to New Testament scholar, Jewish New Testament scholar, Amy Jo Levine, this is exactly how Jewish people steeped in parables. There are plenty of instances of parables in the Hebrew Scriptures from their own tradition, this is how they would treat parables as well, with a playfulness in mind. And sometimes, like today, the parable is actually an application of a larger point. Sometimes they stand alone, but not this one. So what we have to do today is look at the conversation that was taking place before the parable in order to approach it properly. In a way, this parable is Jesus' response to the questions that were posed to him in those preceding verses. And what's going on here? A discussion about catastrophes. It's one of the reasons I thought this was a good one to start with, because of the catastrophe that we have just experienced and are coming out of with COVID-19. 600,000 approximately, almost 600,000 lives in this country alone have been lost. But the headlines that are brought up to Jesus in this reading are all too real and current. Apparently, Galilean pilgrims in Jerusalem to worship were massacred by a tyrant. That's not that far from 50 people killed in a mosque only two years ago in New Zealand. And the other headline that Jesus brings up is not state-sanctioned terror, but an example of life's fragility a random accident, a tower that collapses, killing 18 people. Now, quick backstory on how these headlines may be related to the parable. Quick backstory on how those two stories actually are not two separate stories, but might be very much connected. And I did a lot of research on this, so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> so here's the story. Pilate who was the puppet governor, uh, Pilate uh, of the Roman Empire, wanted to fund a public works project to bring water in and out of Jerusalem, to fund what would be a pretty good political win for Pilate with everyone. But guess what? Pilate didn't want to pay for it out of his own pocket or out of the coffers of the Roman Empire. He decided to use funds from the temple that were supposed to be for temple use. He redirects those funds to build his aqueduct. And of course, this was controversial. Some thought that temple funds were to be used for temple activities. Who knew? Others didn't. Some felt that helping the occupiers of Rome stay happy was always a good idea. Don't cause any trouble. 
In any group where people are being militarily occupied and being oppressed and live under the boot of that oppression, the stress and strain on those communities of oppression is found in just these kinds of things. Do we enable to keep the tyrant happy or do we protest? And back and forth it goes. We see this in every oppressed community today. So there were Galilean pilgrims who have protested what Pilate was doing with temple funds. Pilate sends guards to quell the unrest. Violence ensues and people are slaughtered even inside the temple. Thus this part, which you heard Mina read about the blood, their blood was mingled with the sacrifices. It is as though occupying forces were to invade a church and butcher worshipers on Christmas Day. So some people thought the Galileans got what they deserved. Well, their murder is God's justice for them endangering all of us by stirring up the hornet's nest that is Pilate's wrath. These people had it coming to them. And as soon as these folks bring up this this story, Jesus responds this way. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And then Jesus answers his own question. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Strong medicine, I know. Like I said, Jesus doesn't play in these stories. But he's not done. Jesus himself brings up another headline. A tower collapses. You might say, tower collapses, killing 18 It's quite possible that the 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam were working on the very building project of bringing water into Jerusalem. It's likely some Jews among them who said, listen, it's fine. We'll we'll work on this project. It's good work. It'll bring water to the city. See, again, part of the emotional toll that oppressed communities endure is having to make those kinds of decisions. And no doubt those who chose to work on this water project took a lot of heat from those who thought it should be protested in the first place. And so when they die in this catastrophe, some were no doubt provoked to say, well, this was God's justice. They got what they deserved for being complicit with the empire for helping build that aqueduct. So then Jesus asks a similar question. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? And answers it again. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now, time out for just a moment. As an aside, it's key that you understand those words, as they did, and how important they are in what Jesus is saying. Other translations would say, you will all perish um, in the same way. The same way. That's the key to understanding this. Because Jesus isn't talking about what happens to people after they die. No doubt many will read this passage and suppose that it's a warning about perishing in hell after death. But that is clearly wrong. In line with the warnings he had issued several times already and will continue to issue right up to his crucifixion. Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction, which is what the word repent means, to change direction, to turn around, to rethink, to reevaluate. 
He's making it clear that those who refuse to change direction, to abandon the crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome, will suffer the consequences. Those who take up the sword will perish with the sword. Luke believes that when Jerusalem fell in AD 70, it was a direct result of refusing to follow the way of peace that Jesus had urged throughout his ministry. But back to the dark questions being asked. And they are dark questions. Just like in that story in John chapter 9, when they come upon a man born blind, and the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither of them did. He just buries that kind of thinking altogether. Because that's the darkness of the question that's being asked. It's found in that human urge to want to find blame. Something bad happened to a person or a group or a nation. There has to be an explanation, and it even has to be an easy one to make sure this never happens to me. We console our own anxieties and fears by blaming and scapegoating others. We can call these people primitive for thinking this way, but let's be honest, that'd just be us living in denial because we do the same thing. We're right there with them. Inevitably, it happens like this. This bad thing has happened to this person or these people because they're bad people. And to assure ourselves that nothing bad can happen to us, we're going to come up with a system that, by the way, which will, will, by which we say, well, something bad happened to that group, that nation, those people, that person. It must be that somehow they deserve it. Because if the undeserving have bad things happening to them, then that can happen to me, and I can't tolerate that idea. And so I must come up with a system where I can blame the sufferer for their own suffering. If you want to read an Old Testament story on this and what God thinks of this kind of thinking, you might want to start with the book of Job. So to blame the victim is the work of Satan and the repeated story of history. We want to believe good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, but sometimes bad things happen to the best people. Sometimes the worst things happen to the very best people, like Jesus, for instance. So you know what else is the repeated story of history? It's not just blaming others for everything. It's also turning that kind of thinking onto yourself. Blaming yourself for anything going wrong in your life, much less catastrophes. We do this a lot. In the midst of our pain, our vision goes dim, and we think we see connections between the random twists and turns of nature and our own perceived moral failures. Maybe we try and seize control of the future by thinking that a random accident of nature could have been avoided if we had just been a better person. That you wouldn't have gotten cancer if you'd just been a bit more grateful or smiled more. Or that you wouldn't have succumbed to addiction if you just could have projected success or positivity. Or your kid, wouldn't have, your kid wouldn't have devolved into depression or be rebellious if you'd just been a little better parent. If you just hugged them a few more times. I mean, the guilt, the guilt that we parents traffic in. It's so easy to be captive to this illusion that we are in some way responsible for the things that are really random acts of nature or otherwise outside of our control 
And often it could be evil that was visited upon you. Thinking this way momentarily gives us that sense of control over the most unpredictable aspects of life. But in the end, you know correlating these laws of nature with human morality is really bad news for us and for our neighbors in today's gospel. So Jesus flatly dismisses the popular assumption that catastrophes and death were direct responses of God to human sin. God did not bless and approve the murder of the Galileans, and he did not collapse the Tower of Siloam to punish particular people for their particular sins. And God today does not use natural catastrophes or catastrophes of human origin to punish certain categories of people for their sin, full stop. Now, someone says right now, well, no, wait a second. Sin does have consequences, Fred. Absolutely it does. If you treat the climate terribly, we're discovering it will have consequences. If you disinvest from communities and cut them off from resources, that will have consequences. If you sow seeds of hatred, you will inevitably reap violence. Someone says, well, does God use catastrophes and terrible things? Well, God can use anything to teach us anything. So, yes. When I ran a stop sign when I was 20 years old and totaled my car and saw my life flash before my eyes, I definitely learned from it. <laughs> but God, did God temporarily suspend my otherwise impeccable driving skills? Because I happened at that moment to be thinking about this beautiful woman I'd started to date. Sorry to bring you into this illustration, Torelli. No, God doesn't behave that way. Jesus' primary concern in this text isn't necessarily to unravel the mystery of God, but to tell them to repent. Again, a word with baggage, I know. But it means to change your mind, to reevaluate, to rethink. Of their, to repent of their stinking thinking. It has them asking all the wrong questions. Something terrible happens, and rather than lament the loss of their fellow human beings and repent themselves, they enter into arguments that have them using these tragedies as a measuring stick for who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. The problem with that is eventually the finger we pointed at others will turn back on us. If the suffering of others is due to moral failing, then our own suffering will be too. Thus we will die believing that God is coming after us in some way rather than for us coming after to condemn and hurt and punish rather than pursuing us in love and being for us, which is the great tragedy in this story. I think that's something that makes God weep. You know, we have more resources at our disposal than these original audience to believe that God is for us. We have a God of resurrection, a story of resurrection and victory over the powers of evil in this very world. Then Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree in a vineyard. Now, apparently, some vineyards have a problem with small birds who peck at the grapes looking for the seeds and causing the grapes to rot. And so one solution is to plant fig trees around the vineyard. And the birds prefer the figs because they have more seeds. Seeds are more accessible and they leave the grapes alone. So that's what a fig tree is doing in the middle of a vineyard. 
Now, before I get into the players in this parable, let's just ask potentially why Jesus tells a story about a tree not producing fruit. Because here's something to remember when we're talking about natural disasters and man-made ones. Those who are the worst hit by natural disasters and man-made ones, those who are the worst hit by these acts of violence, financial struggle, climate change, wars, economic crisis, whatever they are, whatever the catastrophe is, they impact, they impact communities who are poor and vulnerable in our world in ways that it doesn't impact others. We tend to think of personal qualities when we think of bearing fruit. But in the mind of Jesus, who thought more systemically and structurally, the call to bear fruit is the fruit of serving and protecting these least ones in light of the fact that, yes, catastrophes of all types regularly occur and that they are disproportionately impacted. Now, many commentators surmise that in this parable, there's a vineyard owner who plays God. And it lends itself for us to kind of look at God as like tapping his foot and being angry and impatient, demanding. There's a tree who plays humanity, fruitless. And there's a gardener who plays Jesus, fertilizing in hopes of the fruit of his way of love in the world or else the oppressive power of the Roman Empire will come down on them as it did in AD 70. That's fair enough. That's an actually a, a great way, one way of looking at this parable. But it's a parable. And parables are supposed to be flexible, meant to be more like poetry. And so instead of assigning roles in this parable, what if we also look at it and look for ourselves in each of the players in this parable? Because parables invite that kind of playfulness with the text. I'll tell you where I see myself the most. I see myself in the tree and the vineyard owner. In the tree, I see that person who is trying to be productive. Maybe this is how you felt for the last 15 months. Trying to be productive. But I feel like I'm really not improving. I'm not bearing fruit. I'm not seeing change. I'm unable to produce in a world that shouts at you, produce or else. I mean, that is the nature of our existence in many ways. What have you done for me lately? We feel unable to make our lives more spiritual, unable to keep a clean house, unable to keep up with emails, to listen well to our family members, unable to eat and drink with moderation, unable to exercise um, like you'd hoped, unable to be patient with our spouse or children cooped up in homes so much in the last year. We feel unable like a fruitless tree. I connect to that. And then there's the vineyard owner. It sounds more like me than the God revealed in Jesus. <laughs> Angry, impatient, wanting better results. I'm the one who, who judges myself and others. And when I started to see myself in this parable as the unproductive tree and the impatient owner, it got under my skin. It kind of broke my heart about myself. That's what parables can do. Because when I see myself in those two characters, I need a gardener. I need an advocate. I need, I need someone to come and cultivate in my life, to believe in me, 
to advocate for myself, to advocate for you, to advocate for the world. What I need is I deal with the unproductiveness of the tree that I am. What I need is a gardener that will come alongside and say, let it alone for one more year. Let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. Until I can cultivate and fertilize. That, that, that little phrase, let it alone, is the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. When he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let it alone. Forgive. Grace, grace, all grace. So one more year, friends, for the gardener to cultivate, to prune, to fertilize, to see you, to see us together as we come back together, to bear fruit. That's an easy application. We are apparently meant to bear fruit, designed to bear fruit. What kind of fruit What kind of fruit is God calling you to bear in the year ahead as you are cultivated and cared for by the gardener? As Jesus is tending the garden of your soul, what fruit needs to be coming up in the year ahead? One more year is such an interesting way of thinking One more year to do what needs to be done. One more year to use your privilege and power to help the least of these. One more year to believe and to actually really, maybe for the first time, to believe that you really are the beloved child of God. One more year to forgive yourself. One more year to forgive someone you need to forgive. Doesn't mean to retrust. But not forgiving has turned itself in on you. One more year to put your mistakes behind you. One more year to work on gratitude. One more year to lay down your judgment of others. One more year to finally do the interior work of getting to know yourself and your own story with a wise and trusted therapist. One more year to surround yourself with people who are for you in the best sense of the world word. One more year for us to gather together, hopefully soon, at the table of God's grace. One more year to be enriched by the story of Jesus. One more year to help somebody else to play the role of the gardener in other people's lives as God and Jesus intends to tend your soul through others. One more year. Jesus is always saying, one more year. Let it alone. Let it alone for one more year. He says it every year. He's saying it right now. To all of us. And everything we know about Jesus leads us to believe that in another year, when the vineyard owner comes around and our tree isn't exactly brimming with fruit, 
Guess what Jesus will say together one more year. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these stories. We thank you for how they push us and challenge us. However this needs to be applied today, we ask that you would give us the courage to set an intention of bearing fruit in whatever ways have come up for us as we've been listening today. That it may not be the beginning of a new year, but it is the beginning of a new chapter for all of us as we are coming out of this catastrophe of COVID-19. And so help us now to set intentions to answer this question, what fruit is God calling us together, collectively and individually to bear in this next version of one more year? Give us grace, we pray to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.